Take your Bibles and turn over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it instructs us and teaches us about our identity in Christ and the gracious work of you in our lives. May we, Lord, understand your word and then apply it and obey you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we have officially made it through five chapters of Romans, and I am not too far off track, maybe a couple weeks longer than I thought, but I think we're tracking right along, and hopefully you are being encouraged by the book. We started this book with Paul's explanation of how he longed to preach the gospel to the saved Christians in Rome. And ask the question, why do saved Christians need the gospel? And we are seeing why saved Christians need the gospel. The gospel is Jesus came to provide God's righteousness to those who believe in him. And this righteousness is revealed at our justification that we're declared right with God through faith in him. But it's also revealed in our sanctification the process by which God is changing us and making us look like His Son. In chapters 1 to 18 to 320, we saw humanity is under the condemnation of God and that sin is the ruler of most of humanity, all of humanity in Adam. Sin is in everyone and reigns over every human except for the only righteous human ever. And who is that? Amen. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The righteous wrath of God abides upon all of humanity, apart from God's grace. And God's just demands, justice demands everyone is condemned. But God, right? Good news. But God. In 321 to 521, we learn that God intervened on behalf of mankind. He provided an atonement for sin, a sacrificial covering for sin. He provided the necessary propitiation for God. That is the appeasement of God's wrath. 
We also learned in these chapters that a right standing with God, justification, was not accomplished through our human efforts, right? It's not what we do. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right in God's eyes. Everyone who believes, however, in Jesus is declared right with God. Good news, right? We concluded the doctrine of justification last week with 5.18 to 21. We learned that just as Adam's sin was imputed to all of humanity, Christ's righteousness is imputed to all those who believe in Him. And therefore, we have received, those that believe in Christ have received God's gracious, gracious gift. This means that no matter how many times we've sinned, if we've trusted in Christ from a born-again heart, we're declared right with God. We're righteous in the sight of God. Our position is righteous before God. Our sin was paid for at the cross, and Christ's righteousness is credited to our account at conversion. And we are holy ones by position. We are righteous in the sight of God. We are truly rich in righteousness, as we talked about last week. That's good news, isn't it? So this truth can lead to some questions, especially for the Jewish mind that was trying to work its way to God. You're telling me I can be right with God. I can be declared right with God through faith alone? Through faith alone in Christ, I'm declared right with God? Does this mean that no matter how much we sin, we are always declared right through faith in Him? Does this mean that if I sin a thousand times this week, I'm still right with God? A thousand times? A million times over the next, the rest of my life, I'm still right with God? Does God's unmerited favor in Christ mean that no matter how many times a believer sins, he is still right with God? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. Wow. That's pretty stunning. That is stunning, isn't it? But then an obvious question comes, right? Especially if you're a Jewish critic of Paul. A person that believes a person is good or right because of their good works, they, they're going to have some questions at this point. So why not just go out and sin all the more? Let's just go for it. If we're righteous by declaration, we have a we're right. No matter how much we sin from now on, we're right. Why not go and live it up in sin? Won't that mean that God's grace is displayed even more? His unmerited favor is displayed even more? Thus God be, will be glorified. Do you feel the tension? Are you feeling a little bit? If you're not, you really haven't understood the argument. This is exactly how Paul starts in 6.1. Look. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? <laughs> the objection was something Paul was accused of previously. Other people had accused him of this. How do I know? Well, because Romans 3.8 says it. In Romans 3.8 it says, And why not say as we are slanderously reported as... Some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So some people have already said this about Paul. That if he believes in this justification by faith alone, or by grace through faith alone, and that you are declared right, 
then why not just go and sin? He must be teaching, you can do whatever you want. Does our right standing with God give us license to engage in sin with unrestrained depravity? If you're a born-again believer, does that mean, hey, I can just go for it, I can do whatever I want, it doesn't matter. Paul answers it really from 6 to 8, chapter 6 through 8. But the short answer is what? 6 2, look at it. May it never be. <laughs> May it never be. Arguably, this tension in biblical salvation has been a concept of much debate since Paul has first began to proclaim this gospel. How is it that people can be right with God without sending it up with no regard for obedience? If we're justified through faith in Christ, then let's just go for it. The doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone states one's legal right standing with God is settled the moment a person turns to Jesus. It's done. No amount of good works earns salvation, right? We understand this. But also, no amount of bad works will lose our salvation either. The born-again believer in Jesus is right with God because Jesus' work determines their eternal position, right? It's not your work. You're not going to keep it. Not, no amount of good works keeps you there. It's what Jesus did. It's done. It's settled. It's done. Over. Right? But, the, but for the person that thinks one's standing is based on their good works and their own goodness, this doctrine is very unsettling. It means their efforts are useless. And in fact, someone who sins more than them, in their estimation, may even be more righteous in God's sight than them. This is repulsive to them. How can God do it based completely on something outside of the person themselves? Also, someone who says it's faith plus works thinks God's works and their effort get them across the finish line. By the way, there are people out there in, quote unquote, they say they're evangelicals that say that if I don't get baptized... I'm not what? Saved. You have to do that. It's faith plus works that get you across the finish line, gets you to heaven. These people will also have a higher view of themselves than they should. Somehow, what about the person that dies before they can get baptized? Both groups of people. Works earn salvation. Faith plus works earn salvation. Are condemned by not seeing the true value of God's work in Jesus. They elevate themselves to equal status with the cross and what Christ did and his righteousness. The Bible says, however, they're dead wrong. The Bible says we are either in Adam and therefore dead or we're in Christ and therefore alive. Now it's important to note that there is another view that is just as damning. It is the view that born-again believers who have been declared right with God, those that say they're born-again believers, who have been declared right with God have no real change in relationship with God until heaven. There's no change at all. In fact, many of them say it's only a mental affirmation of facts about Jesus that happens when a person is declared right. It's walk an aisle, pray a prayer, affirm a truth, and therefore you're what? You're saved. You're positionally right. But their hearts and their lives aren't even really affected. So their faith is what? Just a mental assent. They say, this is the truth. And once I do it one time, even if I was five, I do that, it doesn't matter. 
I'm set. Beloved, both are wrong. Both are wrong. Ultimately, they are forms of human efforts that save a person. If somebody says, I walked an aisle, and their heart is trusting in walking the aisle, then what are they? They're working their way to heaven, even if it was only one work to walk out that aisle. If they prayed one prayer, and they put it inside that little track that they had said. If it wasn't genuine faith from a born-again heart, then what it is is just a mental assent. And it's not, it's not genuine faith. And they haven't been born again. Put simple, when a person changes positions, they also change the realm of rulership. Hear me closely. They are saved and will be saved to glory. True born-again believers change identities and change positions and change relationships with God. They have a new heart. They come alive. They are delivered both from the power and the penalty of sin. So crucial for you to understand this. Salvation is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. Salvation, true salvation, includes being delivered from the power of sin also. Now, admittedly, at this point, some of us in the room are saying, what? I still die. <laughs> we still die, don't we? Physically, our bodies still die. The penalty is still there to a degree, right? Well, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and our spirit will never die. Our new hearts, our new minds, our new souls will never die. And admittedly, this doesn't mean a person will not have a remnant of their old man <laughs> with them all the way to glory. We all know that, right? And everybody says, amen, we know it, I know it, I know it from last week, right? But the reign of death is broken. When we are born again, our position changes our identity changes, and our relationship changes. Positionally, we're set apart. We're sanctified. God sets us apart because of our new relationship with God. We're set, then set apart by God on a daily basis where he continues to change us and make us look like Christ, who we are already in. And we become who we are, right? Put simple, born-again believers died with Christ, didn't they? All of us died with Christ, and we are all what? Alive in Christ. Is that real? Yes, it's real. It's real. It's not just some ethereal thing. It's real. This is Paul's point in this whole next section. True believers in Jesus have been made alive in Christ, and we are now delivered to be who we are in Christ. Let's look at it. Let's walk down through the passage. The passage breaks down into three sections. There's notes. There's also a, a block diagram for you in your bulletins. First, there's the introduction to our union with Christ. That's in 1 through 4. The explanation of our union with Christ in 5 through 10. And then finally, the application of our union with Christ in verses 11 to 14. Let's walk down through it real quickly. It's not hard. It's not complicated. You'll see it, it unfolds very nicely. Let's look first at the introduction. Again, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that... 
As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Let's look at this. First we see the possible objection that's in verse 1. We talked about it. Paul stated with his rhetorical question, meant to bring up the obvious objection from the doctrinal promises of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. But what may appear the natural response to justification alone is, in fact, not true. And Paul answers with the emphatic what? May it never be. In verse 2. The concept of living without a restraint of sin in our lives is repulsive to Paul. He says it as emphatically as he can possibly say. The justified person doesn't say, I'm going to just go out and sin so that grace may abound. That's crazy talk. That's insanity. May it never be. This idea of living in unbridled sin so God's unmerited favor will be needed more is unthinkable to Paul. And unthinkable to anybody that's truly a believer in Jesus. So then Paul gives two short rhetorical questions that show the absurdity of this wrong thinking and the reason for his emphatic answer of may it never be. Notice, Paul used a question that assumes the answer. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin? The answer is implied, isn't it? There is absolutely no way we who died to sin should live in sin under the dominion of sin. There's no way. Died to sin here assumes a what? A new relationship with sin. What was our relationship with sin before Christ, before we were saved? We were in bondage to sin. That's all we could do is sin. But now we've died to sin. This will be developed in our section. The explanatory metaphor is used then in verses 3 to 4. Notice, or do you not know? Or do you not know? Wait, what's this imply? Real quick, what does this imply? Or do you not know? Well, he could be talking to that person that's what? Might have that objection in verse 1. That hypothetical person that might have the objection of verse 1. But I would say that it also could include immature Christians. Christians that didn't completely get it. Or don't completely understand. This change that's happened when we were born again. Our union with Christ. The idea of our union with Christ may not be understood by some even regenerate believers. Yet our union with Christ, our new relationship with God, is the single greatest doctrine that must be understood for full effect of our justification to be shown in the life of the believer. We must know our new identity, know our new relationship with God, understand it, embrace it in order for what? the full effect of our right standing with God to be seen in our lives on a daily basis. So Paul begins to unfold it and explain this new identity, our new union with Christ. The born-again believer's union with Christ is explained with a metaphor of baptism. Baptism. Baptism illustrates this transformed relationship To be baptized means to be immersed in, to put down in. All who have received Christ have been immersed into Christ Jesus. We're in Christ now. A new realm, remember we talked about that new realm? We're in a new realm. This immersion into Christ means we have been immersed into His death. We died with Him. We are united in Christ's death. Therefore, we've been buried with him, is what it says, through baptism into death. This reads a little strange if you don't see Paul as speaking metaphorically. 
using baptism as a metaphor to kind of explain the change. The metaphor points to, we have been united with Christ through His death. All born-again believers, everybody that's been converted, have been united with Jesus through His death on the cross. This is truth, even if we don't fully understand it. I admit to you that John 15, abide in me, is a, a concept that is so deep that for the believer, it's a lifelong study just to understand this concept of abiding in Christ and being put in Him. This is the same thing here. The more we understand our identity of being transformed and moved into Christ, we're changed. And it takes a lifetime to understand it completely. And even then, when glory happens, we'll go, oh, <laughs> It's so much better than even I could comprehend. Whenever you see, though, look at this, very crucial in the passage that I just read in 6.4. Notice the so that clause. Look at the so that clause. Look in your Bibles. Do you see it? We've been united with Jesus through his death on the cross. So that, so that, so that clause is in your Bible you should always stop and ask, well, why is the so that there? Often it gives the purpose of something said previously. Why are we united in Christ? Why did God unite all born-again believers in Christ? Why are we transformed and put into Christ? So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father... So we too, we also might walk in newness of life. We who have been born again have been buried with Jesus through baptism into death. We are united with Christ in his death. Why? Why are we united with Christ in his death? So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So what this means is there's an actual reality, a time, a purpose of what God did. When he saved us, when he worked in our hearts and we understood the gospel and we were transformed, he did this, why? So that we would what? Walk in newness of life. What is the word walk? It's not literally walk. He's talking about a metaphor. Live in newness of life. Guys, were you encouraged by the testimonies last week? I was. And it, 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 it never fails. A good testimony, you know what it does? It reminds me of my own testimony. You too? I was this. Then God saved me, and now I'm this. I was this, and I lived like this, but then I saw what Jesus did, and now I live for Christ. Everybody would say, amen, right? All they're doing is describing this new life that God has worked in them. So if we have no change, and we live the same, And we see sin as really an opportunity to just get more God's grace. Then there's a problem. We're not in union with Christ. We didn't die with him. And we're not alive with him. We died with Christ at our conversion. And we're united with Jesus in his death so that we might live in newness of life. This is glorious news, isn't it? God, through Christ, didn't just pay for our sins. He didn't just make it so that we could be declared right with God. He also transformed us and put us in union with His Son and made us alive with Christ. That's glorious news. We'll see as we go along. 
how good this is. The purpose is newness of life in Him. Our union with Jesus makes living in unconstrained sin impossible and even repugnant to us. We hate it, don't we? All we who believe in Christ when we sin, what do we think? I hate this. I am so ready to quit sinning. How many of you? I'm ready. But this is what the passage says. This is who we are in Christ. That's why it's repugnant to us. May it never be. Would be our phrase too. Next, Paul, notice, explains it. Look at verse 5. He explains it first with our union with Christ in death, and then he explains the union with Christ in life in verses 8 to 10. In 5 to 7, he explains the explanation of our union with Christ in death. Our union with Christ in death. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, then certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be, put, might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is free from sin. Alright, so let's look at this passage. This is an explanation of our death with Christ. Look at it. For if, in, if we, if we, that's a what? Conditional. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, then certainly also in the likeness of his resurrection. As one commentator stated it, he stated it this way, he said, In other words, as an old life died, so a new one was necessarily born. When we were born again, we were literally born to a new life. Is this just a... A theological truth that we can say that is true, or is it a reality? Is it a fact about who we are as believers? Have we really come alive or not? Are we alive or dead? This is the question. Certainly implies we died with him. Certainly, we live with him. How many of you are convinced that Jesus rose from the dead? Me too. Amen, right? Are you just as certain that you are alive in Christ? That is crucial for you to live out who you are in your right standing with God. If you don't know that truth and you don't believe that truth, then guess what? You're going to have a hard time obeying and serving God. Notice, knowing this. Knowing what? That our old self was crucified with him. Does this mean anything or is he just using words? He's just theological concepts. That our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Hmm. Paul uses the term body here to refer to the sinful tendencies that are connected with our physical bodies, our bodies of death. So our old self, this most likely is referring to what? Our sin nature, our old man, our, our sin nature. Our sinful, selfish ways died. They were crucified. This appears to be a reference to our old, dead, sinful nature. It reduces, it's reduced to the condition of no power or no control anymore. Wait a second. But I still sin, Mike. I still sin. How is this? Our old man died at conversion with Christ? Where our old man is dead? It was crucified? Notice in order that our body might be done away with. What's that mean? It's this idea that our old sin nature was crucified in order that we can kill sin 
in the bodies of death that we still carry around. Which implies what? We're still fighting. We're still at war. Right? So after becoming a believer, we have a new nature, a new heart. But this sin of our bodies are still here. And so there's this war that continues on. But we are given this new nature so that we might what? Put it down. Say no. Can an unbeliever do that? No. The unregenerate do not have that ability. The purpose of our union with Christ in death is so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Look at it. We are no longer under the bondage and authority of sin in our lives. Why? Believers, understand this. You must understand this. You are no longer a slave to sin. Do you feel like you're a slave to sin? I had a whole section in my notes that I just totally took out last night because I knew that I would be, I'd go way over if I did it. The problem is, I want to put it back in. (laughs) Why? Because I don't always feel like it. And people even are telling me, I don't look like it. But the purpose of our union with Christ is so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The purpose is that I would not be a slave to sin. Why? Because he who has died is freed from sin. I'm freed from sin, beloved. I don't have to sin all the time. And everybody in the room says, Amen, isn't that good news? If you're here and you haven't turned to Christ and trusted in Him, you can't say that. But if you turn to Christ and embrace Him and enjoy Him and know that He died for you, you're freed from sin. You don't have to sin all the time. Isn't that good? I'm guessing that might be one of the reasons why you're here listening to the Word of God. And you rejoice in it. Our union with Christ is in His death at conversions means the power of sin and its lordship over us is broken. That's real salvation, beloved. We're free from sin. This is not only a positional freedom. This is a real, true freedom. And everybody that knew me before I got saved would say, I see it. I know it's a fact. And my brother in the room says, where is my brother? There he is. (laughs) He's eight years younger than me, and it's it's a wonderful thing for me. It was a bad thing for him. I beat that little boy up many, many times. Picked on him, harassed him, gave him all kinds of hardships. You know why? Because I was a slave to sin. I was all about me. Then I got saved. I found out about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can ask Dave what was the first thing I did when I got saved. He was my first... I think you were my first call. If not, it was mom. I'm fairly sure it was David. Immediately called him and said, Dave, you got to come with me to church. you got to hear about Jesus. And I drove two and a half hours from Leesburg to Lakeland to get him and drive back so that he could start coming to church with me. That's a a person that died with Christ and now is alive. That's not me, by the way. That was because God did it. Transformation happened. I went from wanting to pick on him to wanting to see him saved. 
This is what happens with real believers. An explanation of our union with Christ in life. Look at it. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. We all, as believers, say, I believe in the resurrection. I believe it's true. All of us say, yes. And death is no longer master over Jesus. And everybody in the room says, yes, he's alive. But Paul didn't put this here to just say that Jesus rose from the dead. He put this here to say that because of our union with Christ, we're alive too. In a real substantial way. It's not that we're only declared right and we just affirm some facts. There's been a massive change. We went from opposing God to loving God. From hating God to being friends with God. To not wanting His Word to loving His law. Who loves His law? I do. Why? I'm alive in Christ. Just as Christ rose from the dead, I'm alive. Are you alive? Death no longer is master over Jesus. And everybody says, Amen. It was a one-time death. Now, it's very important that we understand this new relationship we have with Christ in Christ is just not some subjective, nebulous truth. You've got to understand this, beloved. This isn't just a, a fact out here. If you wanted to do a catechism and you could answer and explain a truth about dying and living with Christ. You can answer facts, but this is also a real transformation. Real. Sometimes, beloved, we can fall into the trap of thinking biblical truths are, they're true, but they don't really have an impact on our own personal lives. Almost like, they're good stories or a movie or entertainment, but the events didn't have a real impact in my life. But beloved, do you remember Romans 3.10? Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is no, none who does good. There is not even one. And it concludes with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now what is that? That's the lost condition. Before what? Being crucified with Christ and made to live with Christ. We're raised with Christ and sin is no longer our master. Praise God. Isn't that good news? We can all be used by God to be what? Instruments of righteousness. Hold on. How can I be an instrument of righteousness if he says there's none righteous? No one does good. This right here, you're, you're seeing an illusion, a mirage. I'm standing up here telling you about Jesus, but it's not good for you, and it's not good. What? This is good, isn't it? And by grace, through faith in Christ, because I'm alive, I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. Is it because Mike's something special? No. It's because God did an amazing work. 
in a guy that used to mock Christians and say, you're stupid, you foolish, ignorant people. I'm now standing up saying I'm one of those foolish, ignorant people. <laughs> Quotes. Beloved, we're alive with Christ, and that's real. So then we get the application, and the application is real simple. By the way, if you give a command in God's Word, if God gives a command in God's Word, what is that? Isn't it just another law or requirement or what we must do? How many commands are in 11 to 14? Four. Four commands. Are the commands there just to make us see that we're sinful? Because that's what the law was for, right? To show that we were what? Sinful. Why would he give these commands unless he wanted us to what? Do them, follow them, obey them. And if he gives us commands and said we're alive in Christ, then what's that imply? That we should do it and we can do it. We can obey. If you're born again, you've trusted in Christ, your position's changed, you've been transformed. I've got good commands for you to follow and obey. You ready? Here they are. He gives it to us. Verse 11. Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lust. And do not... Go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Just because something is objectively true as revealed in God's word, we still have a responsibility by grace, through faith, to obey it, to appropriate that truth and to live it out. This is where Paul turns and tells the Christian what their responsibility is in light of their new relationship with God in Christ. And he tells them what? Four commands. Think correctly about our relationship in sin. Do not let sin reign in your body, right? In your mortal body. Do not present the members of your body to sin and present yourself to God and your members to righteousness. Right? Those are the commands. Let's look at them real quickly. We're almost done. Five minutes. Look at these. Even so, points back to despite the reality of our previous verses, there's something that must be done. Consider yourself. What's that mean, consider yourself? It's a present tense imperative, a command. Calculate for yourself. Acknowledge for yourself. Reckon for yourself. Take the message to heart. Appropriate to yourself. Assume the identity. This is who we are. This is much, what I must reckon to be true. The present tense imperative means that we have to continuously do this. We have to continuously rehearse Rehearse, rehearse, what? Dead to sin, I'm dead to sin, but alive in God. Alive to God in Christ. MacArthur states it this way, it's great. Quote, you must know and fully believe that I have just, what I have just said, or else I am about to say will make no sense. Here it is, you ready? The truth that one... You are spiritually dead to sin. You must believe it. You are Two, you are spiritually alive to Christ. 
These are not abstract concepts for your finite man, mind to attempt to verify. In other words, don't try to figure it out. It's just a fact. The Word says it. They are divinely revealed foundational axioms behind Christian living, apart from which you can never hope to live holy lives that your Lord demands. If you do not believe these truths, and you do not hold on to these truths, you will not look like the child of God that you are. You will not be who you are. In other words, that, was, that last phrase was not him. It was right before there. In other words, the truths of 2 to 10, 6, 2 to 10, are not just higher religious thoughts that cannot be applied. They are applied, and we live it. We're dead to sin, but alive to God. So, beloved, knowing that this divine truth is based on practical application... This is who we are. We've died with Him. We now live with Him. We're able to honor and serve God. This is not just a feeling. It is a divine, revealed truth about His own. It's objective. What impact does this have on our lives? We live totally different. <laughs> Notice, do not let sin reign in your body. Do not let sin King, be king in your body. Again, in the present imperative, it's a negative, which means it's a constant battle, a constantly saying, don't let it reign in your body. Which happen, How often do you have to do this? All the time. I mean, this is it. This is our lives, aren't it? Isn't it? As believers, we're constantly saying no to sin. That's what we're doing. And I'm acutely aware, aren't you? Acutely aware of how sinful you are? And how sinful the world is? The longer I go, the more I walk with Christ, the more I sin, how I see how sinful I am. And how it's coming at me from every direction. But saying no to sin is not legalism. It's the Christian life. I've heard this so much. If you tell somebody they shouldn't do something, you're being a legalist. Hogwash. The Bible says it. I say no to myself all the time. If I'm not saying no to sin, then I'm what? Am I? I'm sinning. Does that make me a legalist? Beloved, you don't want your pastor. To stop saying no to sin. That's insane. Our position and our new relationship requires personal responsibility. By grace, through faith. And no, the level to which we accomplish that doesn't get us closer to God in heaven. More more righteous in God's sight. No, that's settled with who? Christ. He did it. I'm probably blowing everybody away now, right? I hope, I hope you're meditating on these. These are important thoughts. Justification doesn't mean I stop saying no to sin. Justification means what? I say no to sin. Because I'm justified, I've changed positions, I've also changed identities, I've changed relationships, and now I obey. That's what Paul said at the beginning of Romans. That the faith that leads to obedience. He does this so that the Gentiles would have faith that would lead to what? Obedience. Third, do not present your members of your body to sin as weapons of sin. That means, beloved, stop offering 
your bodies as weapons of unrighteousness. When we jump headlong into sin, we are what? Using our bodies for unrighteousness. This appears to be common sense, doesn't it? Well, I'm afraid we don't always realize how often we do this. Every time we gossip or we backbite or we worry or we slander or we belittle others, we're sinning and we're using our, the members of our body as instruments of unrighteousness. What's your conversations like when you're outside of church, when you're around other people, when you're with your spouse alone? Are we honoring? Are we loving? Are we building up? Or are we gossiping, backbiting, slamming one another? We must avoid it. Why? Because we can. We can in Christ. And finally, present yourself to God, your members to righteousness, uh, to God as instruments of righteousness. We'll see this, but doesn't this, you know what's really interesting? Paul talks about application of our new identity in Christ here. And he gives four commands to kind of give the overview of what we're supposed to do, our responsibility in light of who we are in Christ and what God's done. But you know he uses this same concept coming up when the application gets real practical. And whence the real practical? uses the same concept, Romans 12. Romans 12, 1, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice. Acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And so he brings back the concept and says, look, your bodies are now an offering to God because you're in Christ. And he'll develop because you're not under the law but under grace and because the Spirit of God lives within you. And you're chosen. Therefore, what? Offer your bodies to God as worship. And then he gets real practical and says, use your gifts, love others, don't return revile for revile. That's it. All right, I went a little longer today. I know it was a long message. It's, it's a very important concept, though, and I wanted to get the whole picture. Please, beloved, I would challenge you. These are verses we need to put to memory. These are verses that we need to have deep in our hearts and understand. Our identity, our understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for us and who we are in him is the basis of our obedience to God. If we don't have it, we don't hold on to it, we don't understand it, we will not obey him. And our lives will be miserable. I want the best for you. I want it. This truth is what we must apply. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. So much here, Lord. Help us. The, the, the concepts are overwhelmingly deep. Our minds and our hearts are, are weak, and, and we still are prone to sin. And These bodies of death we carry are constantly... leading us astray. We're questioning our identity in you and even forgetting who we are in Christ. We need to be reminded of this truth over and over and over and over again. Please, God, help me, help all of us to put these verses to memory and to live out who we are in Christ. Please, God, 
May we stand out in this world for your glory. We know it's because of Christ. He's alive, and so are we. We worship you. We praise you. We thank you. We pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.